Listener Production. Weekend of intensive but fruitless searching that hopes of finding Lucille Gay Butterworth alive were fading fast. As darkness closed in yesterday on the sixth day of the hunt for a trace of Lucille, who disappeared seemingly into thin air from a Claremont bus stop last Monday evening. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is the case of Lucille Butterworth an unsolved 1969 disappearance that reveals how Tasmania police failed to act on a confession that could have changed everything. On the evening of the 25th of August 1969, Lucille Butterworth was seen waiting at a bus stop in Claremont in Hobart. Darkness was closing in on this winter night. The 20-year-old was late for an appointment in New Norfolk, 20 minutes drive along the southern bank of the Derwent River. It was a committee meeting for the Miss Tasmania beauty pageant. Next year, Lucille was hoping to be a contestant herself, but she never arrived that night. She wasn't missed until the next morning when Lucille's boyfriend, John Fitzgerald, called the home of her parents, Bruce and Winifred, looking for her. Her younger brother, John, was just 15 at the time. I answered the phone and he just simply said, is Lucille there? And I said, no, hang on a minute, I'll get Mum. Hmm. And luckily I was standing close enough to Mum because she collapsed on the floor. In 2019, it will be 50 years since Lucille disappeared and her family are still waiting for answers. She's never been found and no one has been charged. We want a body. We want to lay her to rest, which is... Jeez, Adam, it's pine. It's only 50 years. How are we going to get that? Pictures of Lucille show a slim young blonde with a ready smile and striking turquoise eyes. With her parents at her debutante ball, Lucille looks more a girl than a woman. Her hair is piled up in a beehive. She wears a simple and sheer white dress and long white opera-style gloves. Carefree, attractive and popular, she fits perfectly with the age and her small-town background. There's a confidence about her that her modest dreams would come true, a career beyond a typing job at the local TV station, marriage and children. Life would roll out for her. Lucille's half-brother, Jim Butterworth. I can imagine Lucille being strangled and can't breathe and screaming out in her mind uh, for us. And um, her life's been taken, her young life. It was a stop back there then with our life. But in 2010, when perhaps all hope of an answer was gone, something changed. The file landed on the desk of one of Tasmania's most experienced detectives. And finally, a proper investigation began. I'm David Plumpton. I was a police officer with Tasmania Police for um, over 40 years. Retired in December 2015 at the rank of inspector. Do you miss it? You don't miss the circus, you miss the clowns in it. (laughs) Every day, they used to brighten your life. I was appointed the detective inspector for an area in um, Tasmania, uh, the northern suburbs of Hobart called Glenorchy. Lucille Butterworth, many years previously, had disappeared from a bus stop at Claremont, a suburb of Glenorchy, in 1969. And 
when I arrived as the officer in charge of the CIB for that area, it was discovered that um, the coroner had never been notified, a file had never been submitted. She was still, and still is, a missing person, but no one had taken any legal avenue to determine the legality of her, whether she was dead or alive. How unusual was it for this not to have gone before the coroner? Oh, look, I don't think it was that unusual in that it just... Um, Putting Lucille Butterworth in perspective, this was an iconic case. A lot of people from the 60s and 70s in Tasmania, if you mentioned the name Lucille Butterworth, they'd know who you were talking about. Here was this young lady, very pretty, very well presented, lovely young lady, on her way to a, um, at the time they called it the Spastic Association meeting in New Norfolk, where they were preparing for the Miss Tasmania quest the next year, Lucille Butterworth was going to be an entrant, and these state quests were big events. Mm. And so you've got this young girl who has just disappeared off the face of the earth. It caught the imagination for a lot of people in Tasmania. There was a lot of discussion. Sadly, there wasn't a lot of thorough investigation. As an investigator, Plumpton knew his only skill was getting people, especially crooks, to tell him things. And this is what he brought to Lucille's case. His approach wasn't always appreciated by the bosses. Some said he was too close to crooks. That probably cost him promotions. But he knew no other way. The cold case unit, before it was disbanded, had passed on Lucille's case. So it was sent back to Glenorchy to be investigated as a local crime or just filed in the too hard basket. So you could have chosen just to do nothing effectively. It could have just stayed <laughs> where it was. Yeah, that came to my mind on a number of occasions when I was doing it. You know how you always like to blame somebody when things aren't going right? I had no yeah. one to blame but myself. So what were you confronted with, Dave, when you first looked at the file? Oh, look, it was an old file. Sadly lacking in a lot of areas. But what happened then, I made contact with the family. Having experienced this investigation, a missing person investigation must be, for the family involved, the worst possible thing that can happen in your life. There is no doubt Lucille Butterworth is dead. But because no one's ever found her, I think they still have that small percentage of hope in their body that she could walk in the door. David Plumpton called for a volunteer to work on the case. There was no budget made available for this. The investigation would have to be done off the side of the desk, as it's called, when you work a file between other jobs. Despite the iconic nature of the crime and the obvious mistakes, this case seemed to be a low priority for Tasmania police. Previously, the cold case unit had declined to investigate at all, considering any success unlikely after so long. To get any result would require dedication and passion. One particular officer stepped forward. Yeah, Carrie Milhouse. I'm a police officer with almost 23 years' experience. I'm a first-class constable. Carrie Milhouse came to the job later than most. He'd been a manager in retail until switching careers at the age of 30. He'd had a solid, if unspectacular, career until this opportunity came along. I was seven years of age at the time and my parents only lived about um, four or five k's from where she went missing. So I'd always been aware of the case and over the years there's always some publicity about uh, where is she and, and so on and I always thought, I wonder where she is, I wonder if they'll ever find out what happened to her. I really hope they do. And that was throughout my whole um, youth growing up. And then David... Um, when he became Detective Inspector at Glonky CRB, he looked at the file. I went back to my desk and emailed him straight away because of my interest in it. 
and, and went from there. David Plumpton. I was lucky. Because I was in charge at Glenorchy CIB, I could nominate and get people to do things for me. And I was lucky to get a lady by the name of Christine Rushton. She's a senior constable, Tasmania Police. She's a trained analyst. You start putting things together and you discover, hey, some of these people are still alive. Some of these people have got memories of things. And if we dig into some things now, we'll discover things that maybe weren't discovered at the time because overarching it was the fact that Tasmania Police at that time had probably not investigated the matter to the standard that you would expect, let alone the family, yeah. It was only just myself initially because, you know, working off the side of my desk. I worked on it and I started speaking to a few people and it, uh, it got a little bit bigger than bigger than big. Carrie Millhouse. I loved the investigation because I've always been interested in um, science fiction, particularly time travel, uh, and I love that. I suppose it captures the imagination. To disappear with no explanation was totally out of character for Lucille. But police did not treat the fears of her family seriously. They expected she would turn up in a few days. But they never checked Lucille's room to see if anything was missing to confirm this view. Her family knew she only had what she'd taken to work that day. Oh, she's just a runaway. You know, three weeks. It was three or four weeks before they decided, oh, I, I think something's amiss here. Um, I think there's been foul play. She's been murdered. Oh, what's taken you four weeks to realise that, hasn't? Initially, it was only Lucille's family and friends who searched for her. Lucille had a half-brother, Jimmy, from Bruce's first marriage. There was a reward put up. It was after a lot of uh, our complaining. $5,000 was put up. My father and I went to... Um, Bingham. Then Attorney General and Police Minister Max Bingham. Most ignorant person and um, well he stood up with his big frame in an arrogant tone, uh, well you're not the only people that this sort of thing happens to. And I saw my father just shrizzle in the, in the chair, you know, like just knocked him flat. What a disgusting thing for a man of his so-called intelligence uh, to come out and say that. You're not the only one. God damn it. Unless something miraculous happens, Lucille's brothers, Jim and John, and her lover, John Fitzgerald, will take their questions to the grave, just as Lucille's parents did. When you know their story, it puts the consequences of Tasmania Police's actions into perspective. I watched, you know, Mum and Dad disintegrate, slowly. They just slowly disintegrate. Mum had all these horrible, nervy um, things on her face. Um, and Dad, you know, he blamed himself, you know. He said that to me one day in the garage. He said, son, I blame myself for Lucille going missing. It was because he didn't want to drive him the Rupert, her Austin A40, up to New Norfolk, and I don't think Mum did either. The guilt weighed heavily on Lucille's father, Bruce. He woke up one night... In the dream, he felt that he was being strangled, and that's what woke him up. He actually felt that there were hands around his throat and he was being strangled. Um, and when he woke up, he said there was a white red light. The Butterworth's home in Montague Bay looked out onto the Tasman Bridge, which spans the Derwent River. He was looking out that window, straight at the bridge, and all he saw was a white red light, a halo. And he knew um, straight away that Lucille was dead. That's what he said. He said to me, Lucy was dead. She's been murdered. 
mum and dad at one stage were they didn't want to be here. So it was only the fact that I'd said, well, what about me? What they told you that they were going to take their own lives? Mm. They just didn't want to be there. My dad was a good man. He never deserved that. He didn't deserve that. When I met the Butterworth family, any glimmer of hope had faded long ago. What was keeping them going now was a sense of outrage and the sense of loss. As you'll see, this is a family divided and almost destroyed by bad police work. In the absence of answers, blame and bitterness have taken over. On one side is Jim and Sue, and on the other is Jim's half-brother John and his wife Deb. No, no, reconciliation, Adam, is just out of the question. I can say to you now, Adam, probably categorically, there would be absolutely no way in the world he would ring me. What if he did? I'd probably say go and get fucked and hang up. Jimmy feels much the same way about his half-brother John. Lucy couldn't stand him, to be honest, and me either. He was spoiled rotten, greedy, selfish, uh, self-centred, dreadful. There's a separate set of problems between Jimmy and John Fitzgerald. It began over a phone call that Fitzgerald has long claimed he made on the night of Lucille's disappearance in 1969. Now, he reckoned he tried to ring the home the night she didn't turn up. Mr and Mrs Butterworth weren't out. Now, he said he rang, and he's maintained that story all along over these years until he got into the court. I said to him one night on the phone, you know, I said, John... Come on, you didn't phone. Oh, yeah, I thought I did. They had the phone checked out. There was nothing wrong with it. And finally, he said, oh, well, well, maybe I didn't. When I contacted John Fitzgerald, he wasn't interested in meeting up with Jim and Sue. So listen, John, I'm hoping that we can get all the players from the Butterworth family and you and others together, but it, I don't know, is that going to be possible? I don't think it will be. As you've told me, there's just some understandable differences between the brothers on this, but can't we get over that? John's in Queensland at present. Uh, Jimmy, uh, he's a funny guy. He, he loves the publicity. Uh, so you, you won't get us all together, but I'm sure John would be quite pleased to be included in this. Jim Butterworth has been the main family spokesperson and has done much to keep the story in the news. In his version, he was the closest one to Lucille. Her and I were damn good friends. Um, we went out together, we went to dances together and, um, yeah, all sorts of things. What's the age difference? Ten years. I'm, I was ten when she was born. I was so excited, you know. According to Jimmy, Lucille couldn't stand her young brother John. John vehemently rejects this, countering with his own fond memories. Our bedrooms, my bed was there, Lucille's bed was there. And we used to lie in bed at night and talk. Now, that's what he does. He's just jealous. That's all there is to it. The family of her boyfriend, John Fitzgerald, was well-to-do. John's father, Clyde, was a civic leader and local businessman who ran several grocery stores in the town. It was said John and Lucille were secretly engaged. Always funny, always laughing, uh, always had good friends for everybody, loved her. Uh, she'd chatter, wouldn't hurt a fly, always mm. helping. Thought she was probably tougher than she was. Loved dancing, used to go out dancing a lot. That's where she met Fitzgerald. Yeah. And um, 
you know, they go on and say they were engaged. They weren't engaged. Whether Lucille would have married John Fitzgerald is the crux of a seesawing struggle among Lucille's survivors. Jim has a lot to say on this matter. Why do you think that is said that they're engaged? Because it sounded good for the media, and he d- he never refuted it. Never said, no, we weren't. You know, he should get a gold logie for his actions through through this event. Bit of acting going on, do you think? I used to get on well with him, but then over this hearings inquest, I changed my mind. Hello. I went out to the home of John Fitzgerald, Lucille's boyfriend, to get his side of the story. He's been in poor health of late and had just returned from a long stint in hospital. Still going. They don't seem to be able to kill me with, a, with an axe. <laughs> have they tried that? Oh, they haven't tried. That's one thing they haven't tried. But, oh, God, I've had some bad luck. John says he never recovered from Lucille's disappearance, though he had a family and a successful business career. He lives alone in a comfortable house on a nice block with a view of the river where he and the Butterworths searched for Lucille's body decades ago. He believes she's still there, waiting to be found. Uh, I've got a theory on it. Where Lucille was murdered, on the other side of the river, it's very tidal. And uh, if she was murdered there... I'm sorry, I get a bit emotional with these things. Uh, if she was murdered there, why... Haven't they found something like a shoe or a bag or, or something like that? But I, I think because it's tidal, uh, I, I would say her remains have gone down the river to the causeway. Oh, it's not a very good view. Oh, yeah, well, it's a pretty good view, actually. But well, you can't see the causeway. I, I, I've, stu- I've studied quite a lot. And I would say that because it's very tidal, that would be where her, her remains would be. Mm. So you look out on, on your view, you look out and you see a spot where you think she might be? Well, I can't say a spot, but I, I no, say that... In the general area? In the general area, that's where her remains would be. It wasn't long before we got back to Lucille and the divide between the two camps. John says his relationship with Jimmy changed after Jimmy lost his personal fortune. A lot of it, I think, is that's behind it is he's lost so much money. Millions. There's only one person to blame. That's James. If you go into business and you, you and you don't keep your finger on the pulse, and this is what he's cooking. He came out here uh, one time and he said, "Oh, it's all right for you with your big house and that." And he said, oh, "I've lost it." And I said to him, "But Jim, I worked very hard for what I've got, and I was successful in business." He could have had exactly what well, he did. He had exactly the same. He had a mansion down at Sandy Bay. He used to drive around in a great big Mercedes car and. They had two hotels, and, and like he blames everyone, I think, for, for losing all that money. I tried to keep in uh, with both lots, and it was impossible. And then when he started getting very hostile with me, I thought, well, no way. There was always a, a, a certain animosity between Lucille and him. Oh, is that right? Because of the way he used to treat his first wife and his kids. Lucille didn't like that. And all this bullshit about how he used to go dancing with Lucille, he he went out with us one night for dinner, and that was the only night that I've ever known Lucille to dance with him. A photo of Lucille I'd seen in the media was on the wall in John's kitchen. Jim had claimed it was only there for show. That's my darling Lucille on there. That's my ex-wife at the bottom. 
it wasn't a very good marriage because of Lucille. Every time something came up, she would just switch off completely. Yes. Wouldn't have anything to do with me. And I had a great big box of um, photos and stuff of Lucille and she disposed of all that. How did you meet her? Lucille? Yeah. <laughs> One of the strangest things of all times. I used to um, teach ballroom dancing down at the Sapphire Ballroom on a Monday night. And uh, uh, they used to, first dance was a barn dance. Of course, as teachers, we were expected to get up and dance in the barn dance. And uh, I spotted her across the room. And I thought, my word, there's a classy young woman. And she looked across at me and said, that's a decent young man. Are you putting words in her mouth now? Or? No. <laughs> and uh, anyway, when she came round, I was chatting with her for a few minutes. I think she came round twice. And on the second time she came round, I said to her, can I take you home? And my heart was just about jumping out of my chest. <laughs> and she said, yes. And that's how it started. Mm. Mm. And then we were firm friends lovers, everything. Okay, the story so far. In 1969, Lucille Butterworth disappeared without a trace. In 2010, a new investigation was launched into the matter. Police also found themselves in the midst of a family drama. On one side was Lucille's older half-brother, Jimmy, and on the other, her younger brother, John. The struggle for Lucille's memory goes on without her. As her survivors age, this becomes more important. She links them back to a time of youth when everything was good. As part of their case against John Fitzgerald, Jim and Sue show me entries from Lucille's diary written in the months leading up to her disappearance. An actor is reading her words. November 4. Went to work. John came down. Went to ballroom. John didn't leave me all night. I love him so much. Thursday, went to work, went to ballet and ballroom. I love John so much. He bought me fish and chips and we sat over Linda's farm and ate them, then came home. Friday, eight, played squash, went to work, left early and went to John's. Came down to ballroom, John had to dance. Had drink, wanted me to stay the night, then said no. I was upset. Saturday, nine, John didn't come over until a quarter to eight. Saturday 30. John and I are not speaking. He made me quite upset. Saturday 7. It was John's birthday. We went to dinner. We weren't speaking. It was hell. Wednesday 11. John got a new car. Thursday 12. I got a new car. Sunday 8. Went to the beach. Had a really terrific day. Saturday 14. Went to Apex party. John and I not speaking things really bad. We nearly broke up but didn't because John does really love me. Monday 16. Went to John's for work party. Quite a good night. Caught John, inverted commas, kissing a girl from the shop. I was hurt. Had a lot of fun when we got home. Saturday 26. John very sick. Went up and stayed. Don't care what people think. In the weeks before Lucille vanished, John had suffered a broken leg in a car accident. Lucille had written to a girlfriend, Jill, in Perth about the incident and that she'd been back and forth to the hospital tending to John. We only have Jill's reply. An actor is reading from the letter, which was found in Lucille's bedroom after she disappeared. 3rd of August, 1969. Dear Lucille, how are you? 
gosh, I'm sorry to hear that John's in hospital. I know what it's like rushing around all the time to see him. I don't know whether I told you about this guy I was going out with. He rolled his car on the way home from the flat. What emerges from the pages is a young woman dealing with the normal ups and downs of love and life. Emotional upsets pass like clouds over an otherwise sunny day. John is not a suspect. He had nothing to do with what happened to Lucille. But you can understand the acrimony in the family considering how they've been treated over five decades. The new investigation would be a critique of Tasmania Police's handling of the case over 45 years. There were many questions to answer. Why, for instance, did it take weeks for senior police to accept the possibility that Lucille had been abducted? She was a missing person and uh, I think the high-ranking officers thought, well, look, she'll come back. She's just gone away for a couple of nights. Lucille's father was told by the detective superintendent, a flighty young girl, she'll come back. Carrie Millhouse. But you had to rely upon the documentary evidence there to, as a starting point, and that was a mess. I picked up the file we had that wasn't um, particularly big in volume, but it was all, all focusing on one person, John Gannon Lonigan. So when you read it, and you read his offending, his MO, there wasn't a, another direction you could take. And I, I came back the next morning after I took it home and I read it and I said, Lonigan, there's, there's no doubt about it, Lonigan. And that's because the investigators of the day didn't do any work on anyone else except Lonigan. So when you read that Lonigan did this, he picked up a girl from a bus stop here, he sexually assaulted her here, he did four years for rape here. You know, he picked up two girls from bus stops, John Lonigan. Um, he was a sexual madman. He missed the day at work the day Lucy went missing. Everything focused on him, so you couldn't go past it. John Gannon Lonigan had a history of sexual offences stretching back to July 1962 when he attempted to rape an 18-year-old girl. In December 62, he raped a 39-year-old woman and was sentenced to three years in jail. In April 63, while appealing that conviction, he indecently assaulted a 24-year-old woman. Then, in May 1969, a 26-year-old ballet teacher accepted a ride from New Norfolk to Hobart from a man who called himself Peter Evans. The woman later identified the man as Lonigan. He attempted to indecently assault her and threatened her with a hammer. The ballet teacher managed to escape, but Lonigan was not charged because his victim had been reluctant to assist police. Otherwise, Lonigan might have been behind bars a few months later in August when Lucille was taken. John Lonigan... Prime suspect. He'd been a police officer. Well, not police officer. He'd been a junior constable in Tasmania Police. His father had been a uh, member of Parliament. Um, he was this person who lived at New Norfolk. Would have driven backwards and forwards. His wife wasn't home on the night that Lucille disappeared. So he had no true alibi. The case against Lonigan seemed compelling. On the evening that Lucille disappeared, he'd not reported for work at the Boyer Paper Mill in New Norfolk. He was absent for three days, and when he returned, he had burns to his face and arm. He told his foreman that he'd been painting and threw some rags in the fire, which had flared back at him. He'd been staying alone at home the night Lucille went missing, and his alibi of being at a local pub was weak. When his wife and daughter came home, a pair of his pyjamas were missing, which he claimed had ended up in the fire. A few months after Lucille's disappearance, Lonigan's family broke up and he sold up, leaving Tasmania forever. So you've got these set of circumstances that clearly indicate, gee, this uh, Lonigan, no doubt. 
I guess you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of the investigators faced with the information they had at that time. I mean, would you have gone for Lonergan? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. See, this is one of the issues you have with this whole matter is that I could go through in detail everything about Lonergan and you'd say to me, he's the offender. He should have been charged. There wasn't good file keeping at the time. The file itself was missing considerable amount of material and one of the investigators who believed it to be Lonigan uh, had retired and we went to his home and he by then was suffering from dementia but his wife was able to give us um, a lot of paperwork that he had in the um, garage and that related to the Butterworth disappearance and Lonigan and that was original documentation that so that indicates how the file wasn't uh, maintained. So that wasn't that wasn't in the file then? There's, it was no. material that should have been in the file, was actually in someone's home? Yeah, OK. There'd have been this view, I think, that the investigators involved, we've done all the hard work, this is him, I'm keeping this stuff, the chance will come, He'll, I'll get the chance to do this, no one else is stealing this from me. Very possessive of investigations, and that one of the techniques the police have now is any investigation, when it does get to what could be referred to cold case um, status, other investigators review it. That never happened with the Butterworth matter and to make sure that it couldn't have happened or someone couldn't have charged Lonigan, the investigators kept material so that they had to be involved. If you, It can't happen today, but in those days that was the um, view of the times. Certainly it impacts on people like you coming on later on to have a crack, but great you found yes. it. When they do the search on his house in May 1970, they find uh, things that, that have been burnt on an outside fire. Absolutely. Bracelets, scissors, copper wire, penny coin, yep. back of a powder compact, lipstick tube, hair slide. The bloke's red hot. Yep, absolutely. Has to be it. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, again, what happens to those items, no one knows. That, that disappears no. as well. Absolutely. They, look, uh, yeah, um, those exhibits... I was hoping that maybe, just maybe, we'd have found them when we were given this other material from the uh, retired officer's home, but no, never been found, never been seen. In 2014, police spoke to Lonigan's daughter, Michelle Dowsett, and her mother, Jan. Lonigan died in 2012 and never admitted to the killing, but Michelle believes he was the culprit. But John Lonigan was a charming man. But yeah, and I, think, I just them? think they want to put an end to this um, cold case. I really do. And I don't blame them. So you think yeah, he did um, it? Your fa- you think your father did it? I really do think he did it. Yes, I do. I really do. Lonigan's family could only provide opinions on his guilt. He'd certainly been an abusive, violent husband. Things that he did to my mum over the years um, were just horrific. Really horrific. That I can't understand how she could have survived it, actually, to be honest with you. What kind of things did she suffer at his hands? Bashings, him making out that he was trying to strangle her, um, lots of abuse. Um, If she was sick, he wouldn't let her go to the hospital. But he treated me like an angel when I was growing up, when I was young. But when I got older, I could see another side to him that I thought was quite strange. Mm. And also, he had, um, after my mum, he'd married before. He married after, sorry. And he had two children to the other poor lady who went through the same abuse that my mother did. But he didn't tell her that he'd been married before and had a child, me. You know, he kept it so much secret. Um, he was buried under the name of Peter Evans. He had so many secrets. Given what you've been through with your father and your mother and the idea that 
he may indeed still be a murderer, it's, it's not an easy thing. No, I did mention this to him when he was alive, about Lucille Butterworth, yeah, many times. It's not as though I'm sort of speaking now because he's passed away and bringing it up. I spoke about it to him when he was alive. I have got really strong, strong feelings that he did do that to Lucille Butterworth, and so has my mother. And you spoke to your father about Lucille. What did he say? He didn't want to talk about it, and he said, I'm sick of this, and he hung up. So he, he didn't deny it, he just said, I'm sick of talking about it. No, he didn't deny, no. Mm. When Plumpton's team visited Michelle Dowsett and her mother in Western Australia, they got much the same story, that Lonigan's family strongly believed he was Lucille's killer, but they provided no hard evidence to back up the claim. They could add nothing more than the cops had gathered back in the 70s on their prime suspect. Was Lonigan interviewed? He was. He was... What happened with Lonigan? He left Tasmania and went to New South Wales. The detectives who had carriage of the file at the time went to New South Wales and interviewed him and he denied everything and gave a form of alibi for the night, that alibi being that he'd gone to a pub because Lonigan hadn't gone to work on the night of the disappearance of Lucille. So here you have this big, solid man who has convictions for rape, having picked a girl up from a bus stop. He is at home, supposed to be going to work that night. His wife is with their daughter at the Royal Hobart Hospital. So he's alone, and then he doesn't go to work, and Lucille disappears. When his wife comes back, he's uh, burnt something in the fire at home, and um, so... He has an explanation for all of that, but you've got these set of circumstances that clearly indicate, gee, this uh, Lonigan, no doubt, he's the offender. He's the offender. Now, he may well have known Lucille. No one was able to show that he actually knew Lucille Butterworth. Where did that all end up? I mean, there was... Oh, well, yeah, look, all that happened, they interview him in um, Sydney... He denies everything wasn't him, wasn't him. Effectively, he then, it just stops. That's the end of it. Plumpton's inquiries about Lonigan had also yielded nothing new, and his investigation might have ended right there. But he had another lead, which had never been looked at. There was another name in the file. It was just a mention, but it would take the case in an entirely new direction and reveal the tunnel vision the original investigators had about Lonigan. So... He became a suspect, but what happens is he becomes a suspect at the exclusion of everybody else. Mm. So there were two errors, effectively. One, it wasn't investigated immediately, and then when it was, what do they say? Yeah, all the eggs go into one basket. When understate Lucille Butterworth returns, police run down that half-forgotten lead with startling results. Lucille Butterworth is a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Billy Simons. Listener.